are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Melissa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the last 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what is happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But we'll never be boring. Well, it could be boring if you're the kind of person who just looks at puppy videos on Facebook. But if you're anyone else, you'll probably like this. Hey, during our podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBard.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. Well, hey, everybody. Today we are continuing our series on private national security law. And we're going to talk about something known as the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's an obscure committee. Not everyone has heard about it, but it's very important. And we have an expert here to discuss it with us today. His name is David Fagan. He is a partner with the firm of Covington and Burling. David, hey, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's give our listeners a little background on you. You went to NYU School of Law and Georgetown University, and then, for whatever reason, you decided to join the CIA, where you worked as an analyst on Near East matters. Then um, you went to Georgetown Law School and joined the law firm of Covington and Burling, where you've been for 16 years. You're the co-chair of the firm's practice on cross-border investment and national security. Uh, and you are leading the firm's cybersecurity advisory and incident response team. I'm imagining a group of lawyers going out and conducting a forensic analysis of a computer event, but maybe not. Just retaining those who do it and then giving them direction. All right, well, we'll accept that. And uh, you frequently represent the firm on CFIUS Matters, which is an abbreviation or acronym for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's not a disease treatable with penicillin. And you also advise on the mitigation of foreign ownership, control, and influence, which goes by the acronym FOCI, FOCI which is uh, part of the National Industrial Security Regulations. And you are trained chambers rated, meaning U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
leading CFIUS lawyer. As a matter of fact, you've been recognized as the deal maker of the year by the American lawyer and an international trade MVP is what? Most valuable player. Uh, you are. How about that? By Law360, one of our absolute favorite websites for your work on very many transactions. And you've been noted by the Washingtonian Magazine. It's always helpful when they note a lawyer instead of like a pain doctor or somebody who does right. skin treatment. Right, it doesn't re result in as many referrals, but yes, it's nice to have. <laughs> All right, and you are a top-ranked lawyer in both the national security and cybersecurity areas. Now, importantly also, because we are a serious organization, you also created and were the first instructor for a course at Georgetown Law Center on national security law and the private sector. Interesting. Yeah, and the conference that you guys put on was what inspired that probably about 12 years ago. That's, that's a story for a separate podcast, though. All right, well, what in the heck is CFIUS? Give us a little history, well, give already, us some background. You already answered the question, it's not a disease, right? Right. Um, at one point in time, this is, this is a separate story also, at one point in time it was a process for, for actually getting deals done, but it's uh, become a little more challenging these days. It is, uh, CFIUS stands for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's an interagency committee that's chaired by the Department of Treasury. Um, it has eight other voting members. The voting members include agencies with clear national security responsibility, the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and Justice. Uh, it has agencies with historical responsibility for economic policy, as well as the Departments of State, Commerce, U.S. Trade Representative. It has two other voting members who are on for their subject matter expertise, the Department of Energy and the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House. And then those nine agencies represent and feed to various others that they also pull in. So I think any Tuesday afternoon over at the Treasury Department, you could have anywhere from 16 or more agencies sitting around the table discussing the various matters that the committee reviews. The committee's authority is to review transactions that will result in a foreign person acquiring control over uh, U.S. business. Um, so it is a regulatory review process that's related to transactions. Um, just like antitrust reviews are related to mergers and acquisitions, the CFIUS process is a very specialized process related to transactions, ones that will result in foreign persons acquiring control. Um, so I'm thinking, let's give our listeners a reference. So sometimes they want to remember something they read in the paper. Dubai World Ports. Yeah, so Dubai, Dubai Ports World was about the CFIUS process. Um, Dubai Ports World was a transaction that was approved by CFIUS in late 2005, if I remember correctly. It involved the acquisition uh, by Dubai Ports World, which was a Dubai-based company, of ports, and ports that were already owned, actually, by a foreign party, by a UK company. That company had eight port operations. They operated port terminals in the United States. It was approved by CFIUS. People don't necessarily remember that, but the, the, the political controversy that arose after the fact resulted from congressional concern that the committee did not review the transaction thoroughly enough and at a senior enough level in government. So CFIUS itself has staff officials. Each agency that participates in it has staff uh, officials. They are very professional. They are very thorough. Anybody who goes through the process knows that it is an extremely thorough and professional process and one that is very good at diagnosing national security issues. Um, in the case of Dubai Ports World, the transaction was cleared. I believe it was cleared actually with commitments from the parties with respect to maintaining participation in certain programs that were related to the protection of ports. 
and it was cleared in 30 days after the fact and perhaps spurred by a competitor who was interested in the assets. Certain members of Congress, and in particular the New York delegation, as well as members of the press, and in particular Lou Dobbs at CNN, started to politicize the approval on the grounds that it's five years after 9-11, and to be very specific about it, the arguments were made that how could you allow an Arab company and country to own access and control access to U.S. ports. From a national security perspective, the committee had done its job, and there wasn't a real national security issue um, and that had been addressed, but it became highly political and politicized, led by several members of Congress in New York, and that in turn resulted in amendments to the law a year later under the Foreign Investment National Security Act of 2007, and that act and its implementing regulations govern the process to date. Okay, and that we call that act FINSA. FINSA. And uh, off the top of your head, do you know the citation of FINSA for our yeah, listeners? Yeah, it, it is now 50 U.S.C. Section 4565. It formerly was 50 U.S.C. App Section 2170. Boy, do we know how to land a podcast guest, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we are today, and what is the threshold? Like, what brings a particular transaction before the committee. Let's say I, 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 you know, I'm a Russian national and I own, you know, one share of stock in a company or I am going to buy one share of stock. Obviously that's not going to be something that is going to result in review, or is it? There, there's a three-part test for CFIUS to have jurisdiction, and I'll distinguish between jurisdiction and actually the transactions that are filed with CFIUS and reviewed by CFIUS. Um, so the three-part test is you need to have a foreign person. Um, that can include any person that is owned or controlled by a foreign person. And it can include, for example, therefore, U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies. That's the first part. You need to have a U.S. business. A U.S. business is defined as essentially any collection of assets that when you put them together, they can comprise a going concern, uh, but to the extent of the business and, and interstate commerce. So it does not have to be an entity that's incorporated. It doesn't have to have a formal legal structure around it. Asset acquisitions, so the, the, the acquisitions of a collection of assets, employees, contracts, intellectual property, and the like are, can be sufficient to constitute a U.S. business for purposes of CFIUS jurisdiction. Uh, and then the key definition is also control. The transaction has to confer control to the foreign person. Control is defined as the ability of the foreign person to determine, direct, or decide important matters affecting the U.S. business. Um, that is intentionally a very broad definition. It does not have a bright line threshold in it. There are indicia of control that um, transaction parties would need to understand on whether the transaction could be covered or not, and that those of us in the CFIUS bar spend a lot of time um, on the advisory side and transaction planning side thinking through. But it was defined broadly, and all three of them are actually defined very broadly, intentionally, I will say, um, to allow the committee to have very broad authority to review transactions that might implicate national security interests. The transaction to review it does not have to implicate, uh, for the committee to review it, does not have to implicate national security interests, and, and national security is not actually in the threshold for whether the committee would have jurisdiction. You could have a Canadian company buying an ice cream company in Vermont, and 
that transaction. I feel threatened by that, by the you way. Feel threatened <laughs> by that. that seems like a menace to national right? well, security. Well, the French have defined yogurt as not <laughs> crucial to national security, so it could be, right? Um, the Italians have defined dairy farmers as crucial to national security, so you never know. Um, but if those parties, if the seller and if the U.S. business and, and the acquirer wanted to file that transaction with CFIUS, it would be reviewed by CFIUS. They'd have jurisdiction over it. Those transactions generally are not filed with CFIUS, and CFIUS generally does not review an acquisition of an ice cream factory in Vermont by a Canadian company. The reason for that is because CFIUS's authority to act is tied to national security. While they have very broad authority for jurisdictional purposes, the actual authority to take action is very narrowly focused on whether the transaction at issue would threaten to impair the U.S. national security. And for that reason, the vast majority of transactions that involve foreign persons acquiring a control of a U.S. business are never filed with CFIUS. Um, and the statute was intentionally drafted that way, and the regulations were intentionally drafted that way, because as a policy matter, the U.S. benefits from the attraction of capital into the U.S. to grow and develop the economy and to invest. And so for, for decades now, we have not wanted to create barriers to that, and we have only wanted a foreign investment review process to be able, that's, that's broad, like CFIUS, to be able to take action where truly necessary to protect the national security, otherwise foreign investment should be able to proceed. So, and, and yeah. likewise, we want to invest in, in foreign invest companies. Yeah. Uh, and we, you know, we want to acquire some of those things as well, do we not? And if we were to set a standard that was uh, too much of a deterrent, this might impede our ability to acquire interests in other countries that might be in the interest of the U.S. economy? Uh, absolutely. It's a great point. And we mentioned that the statute was last amended in 2007. It was originally enacted in 1988, um, actually following some political debate and concern over Japanese investment in the U.S. Oh, yes, um, the, the threat that was Japan. The threat that was Japan, um, buying Pebble Beach and Rockefeller Center. But when the statute was amended in 2007, it followed Dubai Ports. And there was more noise and awareness about Dubai Ports in the U.S. and then abroad than, than there was really a focus on the actual law that was enacted. And the law that was enacted was largely codified and enhanced CFIUS, but consistent with having a very open policy of attracting foreign investment and only reviewing a very narrow segment of transactions that might implicate national security. That was not necessarily how the Dubai Ports world debate was perceived in the rest of the world. And if you look back, there was a series of proposals in other countries that also focused on creating some restrictions for foreign investors in those countries. And Can you give us an US, example that might be helpful? Yeah, so the Russians... Um, adopted a law that had a number of sectors in it at the time of 2007. That was a time when U.S. businesses were very focused on investing in Russia. It's a different, obviously, a different landscape now, but at the time, um, that was significant. Uh, and let's just remind everybody, you know, the wall had come down. It looked like they were going to have this robust capitalist economy. There were uh, investment opportunities. The, uh, right. Definitely the global, the geopolitics right. were quite a bit different right. uh, than they were in the wake of uh, feared right. interference with elections and so forth. Right. Then the French have this, had sector-specific rules. I think even the Australians looked at their process at the time. It, so it provided cover for a debate in other countries that at the time also would have been potentially restrictive on U.S. access and U.S. investment into those markets, um, or at least impacted the capital flows that we like to encourage. It's a different world now, but that was a one consequence of the, of the Dubai Ports World debate was you had 
more of a proliferation of these laws, uh, at least being considered and in some cases adopted in other countries. So what if Sophias makes a mistake? Let's say, you know, Sophias has decided that our ice cream factory in Vermont is a national security risk and blocks the transaction, and then is there an opportunity for the companies to go back and say, actually, can you reconsider this matter, or you got it wrong in some way, can they go back and, and try and get reconsideration? Yeah, so that's, that's a great uh, question. So the law provides that the authority that's provided through the law, and the authority is for the committee to review it and the committee to take action to protect national security, but the committee actually does not have authority to block a transaction. Only the president has the authority to block the transaction. So the committee is acting on behalf of the president in reviewing a transaction. And if the committee decides that there are national security issues that cannot be resolved, then they have the ability to refer the matter to the president to block or if the transaction has been consummated to unwind or take other action in connection with that force of divestiture. If the president makes a determination to block a transaction and issues an order, under the law, there's no judicial review of that decision. It's absolute. And there are very strong constitutional arguments that in that circumstance you wouldn't have any ability, right? The, the national security is in, generally in the domain of the executive branch, and the president under the Constitution has authorities there, and then there's the Youngstown Steel case where... Young lawyers, bust out your pocket yeah, constitution. I, I did. I, <laughs> I did actually teach a class on this at one point in time. It shows. There is the Youngstown Steel case where Justice Jackson had this concurring opinion where he sets out where the executive branch is operating at the height of its powers and when Congress has actually um, bestowed the authority and it aligns with something where the executive branch has the authority, then it's really not subject to any judicial review. That being said, the process that CFIUS applies is subject potentially to CFIUS review. And CFIUS, there is a DC Circuit decision arising out of a wind farm transaction that was ultimately. Let, let's unwind. refer to that case, David, if we could. That's the Gall? The Rawls. Rawls, Rawls case. case. Rawls case, yeah. Um, so the Rawls case was an acquisition by a company formed by several Chinese nationals who had been executives at the Sani Corporation to acquire. Um, a wind farm project in northern Oregon that was near Boardman Naval Air Station where there was testing of some advanced U.S. military systems. Um, that transaction was not filed with CFIUS voluntarily before it closed. The parties were contacted by CFIUS, they filed at that point, and ultimately President Obama issued at what at the time was only the second presidential order in history unwinding a transaction, forcing the divestiture, it didn't unwind the transaction, it, it compelled the divestiture. There was a lawsuit that was filed. The lawsuit, um, initially the government prevailed at the district court level, but then it went up to the D.C. Circuit, and the, the Rawls parties prevailed at the D.C. Circuit on process grounds, not on reversing the president's decision. Um, and essentially the D.C. Circuit said that CFIUS, because its authorities can essentially result in a deprivation of, pro of property interest, has to provide due process to the parties, and that process has to include sharing unclassified information as the basis for the committee's position with the parties, and allowing the parties an opportunity to respond to that to try to address it on the basis of that information. Let's make sure we're clear about a couple of things. When you talk about address that, address that how? What kind of addressing of that problem would take place? So um, what transaction parties do when, and what the committee seeks to do in most circumstances. When there are national security concerns that the committee identifies in a with a transaction, they try to resolve them. And the mechanism that you resolve them is a con concept known as mitigation. 
The statute authorizes the committee to use mitigation to address national security concerns to the extent that the mitigation constructs can resolve them. And so what, let me add, so is this, is this a place where private lawyers really earn their keep in this process? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, as counsel to parties, what we try to do is solve the government's problems for them. And with all affection, they're, I, have I have friends on the committee, and I've dealt with them for 16 years. And it, it really is, as a, as a citizen, if you saw the committee in action, I think you would take a lot of comfort in the level of professionalism of the committee staff. That being said, we tell all of our clients, you should be, the government is very, very good at identifying the problem. I've never seen a case in hundreds of cases that we've done where I think the committee missed an issue or they didn't diagnose a problem. They are very, very bad at coming up with a solution because the solution has to fit with the business. It's very hard on the government side, in my opinion, to be able to devise the constructs that actually would work in the, in the abstract and then work in practice because they, imp they implicate business considerations and how a business operates commercially. So our role as counsel in those cases is to help the parties understand what the government's concerns are, even if you don't agree with them or even if you seem counterintuitive, if they seem counterintuitive. Even if they don't solve the fundamental issue, right, even if, if the concern of the government, this is something that comes up frequently in Sifu's cases, government deals with the transaction before it. That transaction may raise concerns that exist well outside of that transaction and that will continue to exist regardless of what happens with that transaction. It's called extant risk. Our job as lawyers is to help the parties understand what the government's interest and concerns may be with that transaction and then to work with the parties and help them solve the government's problems. And if we can solve them proactively, but it's through both structuring in transactions themselves as well as putting together these mitigation constructs and working with the government on the agreement that then will codify how the business will operate going forward or commitments that will be made to the government that are enforceable under the statute and that address the national security concerns. And once those concerns are addressed by one of these mitigation agreements, sort of what happens next? So once FUSE approves, there is, there is a legal safe harbor at that point. Um, the statute has what's referred to as an evergreen provision where if the parties make a material misstatement of fact or omission in their submissions to CFIUS, or if there's a material breach of the mitigation agreement, then in theory the committee has the ability to come back in under law and reopen the case. But short of that, you have an absolute legal safe harbor against uh, further action by the committee once the committee approves. The mitigation agreement is tied to the committee's authorities. Um, and the parties have an ongoing obligation, therefore, to comply with it as long as that mitigation agreement continues to exist. Of the nine voting members on the committee, typically you will have one or more who are the CFIUS mitigation agencies or CFIUS monitoring agencies who enter into that agreement or a letter of assurance with the parties and are responsible for monitoring it on an ongoing basis. And for, for years, potentially. Is that what you're saying? For years, potentially, yeah. And so they would need counsel, potentially, for years for potentially to adhere to this mitigation agreement. Yeah, and although if some parties determine on that they have the ability to, to just engage with the government directly, and actually in some cases that works fine and well. It needs to be a relationship between the business and the government you know, going forward. But in other cases, 
parties need help. They need help from a resource standpoint or otherwise ensuring that they're hitting all the marks and that they understand where the government uh, will be coming from on the agreements. Okay, I have a, a hypothetical question for you here as we wrap up today. Imagine that you're a young lawyer, I think I frequently say living in the Mission District in San Francisco, cultivating a practice where you're, you're dealing with startups. You want to be the startup guy. What advice would you have based on your experience with CFIUS to these young lawyers? What should they be on the lookout for? How might they socialize this kind of concept with a startup that the goal is get a lot of hits for your brand new website or whatever it may be, get a lot of attention for it, and then find a venture capitalist to sweep, you know, swoop down, grab you up for however many million, and then move on to the next thing. What advice would you give that lawyer? So that's a good question. I think the advice, whether it's to that lawyer or others who are dealing with any potential transaction or with a party that may look to foreign capital in the future, is national security issues are not necessarily intuitive and obvious to people who spend their life in business. And people who spend their life in business rightly, especially in this country, focus on the bottom line and how to, how to grow their business and how to then maximize value. That mindset is very different than what a national security official in the government will look at. And they see the world a different way. Um, and I think the smartest thing that any lawyer who would be counseling a client, whether it's a startup in California or a multi-billion dollar enterprise who's looking for an investment that would include a foreign person, is you can't just look at it from the perspective of how you think your business works or how you view your business and how it fits in the world. You actually have to get specialized counsel that can reflect how national security officials in the government will also look at it. They are rightly paid, right? Their job is to be paranoid and to see, and they, they have information that colors their views of the threats that exist. That if you're just dealing in the business world, you don't, you, you don't have to see, and you generally don't have to grapple with. But if you're gonna get a foreign investment in the future, and it's gonna be from particular countries, such as China, let's say, it will put you and your business into a different box. And that's a box where those national security officials will have something to say about the future. You have to be able to plan for that. Um, and the, really the only way to do that is to make sure that you can connect how you want to grow that business um, and how you view your exit options in the case of a startup with what would align with a regulatory framework, whether it's antitrust or in this case, a national security review. Awesome. All right. Well, we really appreciate you being here. Maybe you'll come back uh, and elaborate on this again for us in the future. Uh, but we always ask at the end of every broadcast, tell us what we should be on the lookout for from you. Any publications, any writings? Uh, is there anything that your law firm posts that you think might be helpful to our listeners? So um, I would be on the lookout for content from us related to the CFIUS reform legislation introduced um, by Senator Cornyn, potentially programs around it. Could you give us the URL again for that website? Uh, yeah, very good. Uh, <laughs> it's www.cov.com and mark my marketing people. Thank you. <laughs> So thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. 
So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law on a skiff where you have no access to the device you're, you're using to listen to us right now, and you're certain you need less sun than other people to maintain a healthy amount of vitamin D, and you want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history, a courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at our next conference. Just remember, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out on AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.